0: Uh, Before we turn our attention to God's word, uh, let's take a moment and collect ourselves and bring our attention uh, to the Lord. I'll let us take a beat here and then I'll pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, Father, As we wait in between your first coming and your second coming, uh, you come to us by your Spirit. And on this pilgrimage uh, that we're on, you come to us in your word. And you speak to us. And you guide us. And so, Lord, would you come to us this morning... And would you open our ears so that we might hear and reflect and deeply digest what you have for us in your word. Speak to us, Lord. Your servants are listening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Our scripture text today comes from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, we're in chapter 64, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 9. So Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 9, this is God's Word. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you. Who acts for those who wait for him? You meet him joyfully who works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There's no one who calls upon your name, who rouses themselves to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, You are our Father, we are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sometimes to appreciate the light, one needs to spend some time in the dark. It's the reason why jewelers set a diamond against a black velvet backdrop. To better see the brilliance of the jewel and to better appreciate its beauty. And perhaps that's why the old timers, when they were coming up with the lectionary, which is just the suggested text that groups of Christians meditate on uh, each Sunday. Perhaps that's why they chose this text to be read the second week of Advent. Perhaps it's because the only way one can appreciate the light of Christ is to see it against the darkness we often find in our world and in our own heart. The prayer of Isaiah is a prayer of someone in great need. They are in a mess, and as we'll find out, it's a mess of their own making. At the heart, it's a prayer for mercy, prayed by a nation in exile after the devastation of war, looking for God to remove their enemies and restore their fortunes. Once and for all. And throughout the generations, Christians during Advent have resonated with Isaiah's prayer. We've said, I get that. And we've taken it and we've made his words our own, giving voice to our deep longing for renewal. Renewal. It begins with those haunting words. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. There's a visceral need for God expressed here. The need is immediate. The situation is dire. He's saying, tear a hole in the sky if you have to, Lord. You might think of it like this. When the house is on fire, you don't want the firemen to be fuddling around with the keys. You come to the door and you bust it in. Burst into our world, Lord. Remove all the barriers separating us from your deliverance. Bust them down. Come on to the scene. The place is on fire. Rent the heavens. And come down. Isaiah goes on to say, that the mountains might shake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. He's saying, come down, because when you come down, things change. Like right now, the world is like water, but you could come down and make it boil with justice, with peace. You could put out the fire. You could make our enemies tremble and shake. And then he says, you've done this type of thing before. Verse 3, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. And so he recalls and brings to mind the, the great works of God in the past. When the problems and sorrows and enemies of God's people seemed like big mountains that ended up quaking at his presence. Certainly he's looking back to the the Exodus when God acted surprisingly and decisively on behalf of those he loved. He's saying, "We we know you've done this type of thing in the past. Will you do it now? Will you rend the heavens and come down? It's a question that many in our world are asking today. Maybe some of you. For others of us, we might need reminding that the house is on fire. Because for many of us, I imagine things are pretty swell. It's how I feel today. I woke up this morning and I used an automatic starter to start the car. It was warm, then I went in. Today I get to worship with God's people Celebrate some good deacons after the service? See a kid's basketball game and piano recital? Luckily, I'll light a candle tonight with my family and say a prayer before watching a lame Christmas movie. But I will do all those things, understanding that in the same world, a family shivers on a street corner with no one to help them tonight. In the same world, an addiction overpowers and topples an already teetering life. A doctor is waiting to make a call on Monday morning with very bad news to someone. Terrified children will learn that their parents have been killed in a military attack or parents cling to the remains of their children and they cry out to God for salvation. The house is on fire. Oh, that you would rend the world, the heavens, and come down. Sometimes we forget. We have methods of forgetting. We have TV and smartphones and Amazon Prime and central heating and multivitamins and health insurance and and seat belts and kids' basketball games. And none of those things are bad but we have a way of walling ourselves up from the awful winds of winter until it creeps through the cracks. And then there's a tragedy. Someone gets sick. Someone dies. There's a miscarriage. A car wrecks. A marriage ends. A dream dies. And then our voices rise and join countless others O oh Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down. In many ways, this is the historic cry of Advent, traditionally a season of waiting and longing, not to open gifts on Christmas morning, but waiting for God to burst on to the scene with a deliverance that we desperately need. Advent is traditionally a place of sorrow, at least at the beginning of it. A recognition of longing, grief, and pain. A recognition of the wait. Waiting on God to deal with the darkness out there and considering what that might mean for the darkness in here, in the human heart. Isaiah goes on. He goes on to say some sobering things about the human condition. But it's interesting to consider his logic. Before I read it, will you follow me? He says, Lord, I want you to to come on down, burst into the scene and set things right. But what does that mean for all that's unright? In his own heart. In other words. He gets it. He says I'm glad God for you to come down and set things right. There in Arkansas. Or in Gaza. Or in Israel. Or in the White House. Or whatever. I'm glad to have God come and set things right. But what is he going to have to set right in me? Verse 5. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. But then you sense a but. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become... Like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name. Who rouses themselves to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us. And have made us melt in the hands of our own iniquities. That line gets me. Melt in the hands of of our own iniquities. Isaiah looks into the darkness and what he sees is his own reflection staring back at him. He looks in the broken waste around him and he sees that his people are in a mess largely of their own making, melting in their own iniquities. To read Isaiah is to know that that's much of what his book has been about up to this point. Pointing out how Israel had put their hopes largely in chariots, horses, and political alliances, forgetting all the while to pay attention to the Prince of Peace through their God. Pointing out the luxurious ways in which his countrymen lived while the poor. vulnerable, wasted away, and all of it stoked by the moral depravity of their political and religious leaders who cared little for what God's word said. The world was a wasteland, littered with the bodies of the vulnerable, and he looks down and he sees blood on his hands. Isaiah understands that it's not just abstract evil out there. It's what's in me, in you, in us. And from Isaiah's moment, time marches on and not much has changed. We continue to be confronted with the reality of what seems like endless war. And rather than spend time on our knees lamenting the loss of life in an unending cycle of foolish violence, no, so many of us respond with more hate and more fighting. They deserve it. No, they deserve it. Pick a side. No, that's the wrong side. Lord, have mercy. So much of it stoked by the misinformation campaign of political megalomaniacs on the right and the left playing their crooked flutes for angry mobs who are happy to form lines behind them. And most of us read about this stuff on our phones. Eyes glazed over with the dull electric glow of a touch screen commodified by clicks run more by corporations, our hearts, than by our God and his word. It's our ability to endlessly consume with little regard for what it means for God's good world. It's the careless way we use our words. It's the kindness withheld. It's the pride in our hearts. It's our daily disregard for God. I'm just saying, You look closely enough at the darkness and you see that it's not the unknowable evil of the criminally depraved. It's us. And it's always been us. All of us. Now to hear all that is kind of a bummer. That's true. (laughs) But I would argue... That it is the black velvet behind which Christ's love is clearly recognized. And without it, we will never be able to appreciate his coming. In her wonderful volume on Advent, priest and theologian uh, Fleming Rutledge writes this. She writes, Advent is designed to show that the meaning of Christmas is diminished to the vanishing point if we're not willing to take a fearless inventory of the darkness. It requires courage to look into the heart of darkness, especially when we're afraid we might see ourselves there. The authentically hopeful Christmas spirit has not looked away from the darkness but straight into it. The true and victorious Christmas spirit does not look away from death but directly at it. Otherwise, the message is cheap and false. Instead of pointing out someone else's sin, we confess our own. In our sins, we have been a long time. Advent begins in the dark. What is she saying? She's saying to rush to the mangers to rob it of its scandalous beauty. Yes, God came to save us, and that in and of itself is heartbreakingly beautiful. But why do we need to be saved? Exactly how bad has it gotten? Isaiah's answer pretty bad. And so we peer into the heart of darkness, and we are invited to experience the tension that Isaiah experienced. How in the world will God come to end evil without ending us? And Isaiah didn't have an answer to that question. But he had enough faith and hope to believe that in the heart of his God, there just might be one. Verses 8 and 9. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay. You are the potter. We are the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. So he anchored his hope in really three ideas. First, he said, God is our father. And a good father will do anything for their children. Next, he says, God is an artist. We are the clay, you are the potter. And as you took dust and shaped life, certainly you can take the the misshapen stuff of what we've made, of what you've given us, and make something new and beautiful. And all of it is rooted in his gracious choice of us. You see how it all ends, for we are all your people. It's the language of election in the scriptures. That God sovereignly set his love on us, not because of anything we've done, before we've done anything. That his love for us is located not in who we are or what we've done, it's located simply in his choice to love. He loved us because he loved us. So Isaiah didn't know what it would look like, but he was convinced that the father, artist, Choosing God would find a way. And so I go back. I missed a, a verse. I would missed it on purpose. Verse 4, he says, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by ear, nor eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. What a wonderful Advent verse. So much so, we're going to read it together. From of old... No one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. And God would act, but not in the way, any way that Isaiah could have predicted. Because he came down, but he didn't rend the heavens, he didn't come. On clouds of glory. Soundtracked by victorious trumpets. He came to us blood streaked. As babies do. Soundtracked by mother's cries of pain and struggle. Of lowing cows and buzzing flies. And as his earthly mother wrapped the newborn body in swaddling clothes. The heavenly father wrapped the second person of the trinity. In our injured flesh and our broken story. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here to breathe our air. Walk our sod. Feel our pain. Heal our wounds. Most of all, he came to rob our sins and make us holy. He came as substitute and sacrifice to live a life of beauty so that he could give us a gift, his record, his life. And we gave him something in return, our sin, our injustice, and our darkness. He didn't rent the heavens. He rent himself. And opened the doors of heaven to us forever. From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God like this. Who acts for those who wait for him. And now we may see the the wisdom of meditating on a prayer like this at Christmas. Christmas. We place the jewel of the gospel against the backdrop of our situation and we let the thing shine and we sit and we ponder the great paradox of it all that we deserve judgment and yet nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That though we all willingly participate in an awful heritage of sin and injustice and evil, and though our sin marks us out for judgment and condemnation and death, we will instead be justified, found blameless, and raised to everlasting life. This was the point of the prophets. And if we don't allow ourselves to remember that sin, And the injustice and evil. If we fail to consider the soul-crushing weight of it all, then we will make cheap the sentiment of salvation. It will become as plastic as ornaments, as empty and as dissolvable as sugar. If we rush to the nativity to the singing angels and to the wise men, if we sing O Holy Night before we sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, then we are likely to have a cozy yuletide season, sure. But I doubt that our hearts will be devastated and overwhelmed by the beauty and the scandal of salvation. But if we allow our hearts to peer into the darkness, In both solidarity with those hurting. In grief over our own own sin. And in defiance of evil itself. Then we can let it break our hearts. And draw us to God. And to prayer. And to an ever building hope. Hope and light builds in Advent. It starts in the dark but it doesn't end there. You light one candle. And then you light another. And then the third one is pink. (laughs) And you turn a corner towards the light. And on Christmas Eve, you light the Christ candle. And that candle goes out and it lights every candle in a room lit with candles. The lights go down, but it's still bright. Not with artificial light, but with the light of Christ. Hope builds. And so my gentle invitation to you, the church that I love, is to ask God what it would mean to allow your heart to hold that pain and that hope in the same place, if we're only moments this season, to look into the world's hurt, to our own hurt, to the unanswered prayers, the tragedy we've seen, the way we've contributed to the mess. So that when Christmas Eve comes, we can hold those things before the resilient fire of Christmas. If we allow ourselves space to make room in our distracted hearts this Advent to acknowledge these things, then when we come into the room on December 24th, I imagine that our anticipation will have been stirred to a fevered pitch. And I can imagine ourselves then falling before the manger, hands and knees in the dirt and the manure, tear-streaked faces broken down at the worship of a God who would stoop so low. Then our songs of hope will ring out through the sanctuary, not as nostalgic heart-warmers, but as protest hymns, against sin and death. We will see the glow of light in people's faces, people that we love, and we will remember that now they will live forever. And we will remember in the depths of our soul that he is no angelic cherub. He is more than a plastic lawn decoration. This is more than a charming church pageant. He is God with us in the long winter. God with us, Emmanuel. He's here to rob our sins and make us holy. The perfect son of God. Holly jolly Christmas is the soundtrack of everything in our lives. It crowds our calendars. And in all of it, we're being drawn away from the subversive hope of Advent. And we're being drawn into a superficial half pagan parish parody of something ancient, mysterious, and beautiful. And don't get me wrong, I love secular Christmas. At the end of the day, I do. I love all the dumb movies. I listen to all the music. I even love that Paul McCartney song that's so annoying. Simply having a wonderful Christmas. I like that song. I am the pastor of Christmas. That is the official title. So celebrate it. I don't care about the pagan origins of Christmas trees or Yule log. I don't care what giant corporations put on coffee cups. Advent to me isn't about burning down our dearly loved traditions or trappings, but it is learning to redirect ourselves to something greater, something worthy of worship, something that lends significance to it all. And so we light our candles. And we sing our songs. And we wait for the God who acts for those who wait for him. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the prayer of Isaiah and how he pulls no punches. Thank you how he so clearly and without reservation makes us grapple with the darkness in our world, and in our hearts. And thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us there. Uh, But in peering uh, into the darkness, we have an opportunity to see the light that came into the world to end darkness forever. And so, Lord, would you help us uh, this season as everything in the world wants to distract us and hurry us uh, make us anxious would you help us to take moments of reflection not to look away from our own need of you or the world but that we would be able to lend our voice Uh, To those crying out, as Isaiah cried, O rend the heavens and come down. And we would be brought again to see the face of our Lord, who has promised to do that in a way that would one day end evil without ending us. We give you praise and thanks. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.